One of the most unusual figures in church history was a man named Simon the Stylet. He was what church historians call one of the desert fathers. And around the year 423, he constructed a short six-foot-high pillar with a platform on top on the edge of the Syrian desert. And he climbed on top of that pole, and he chose to live there for the next six years. During that time, he received many visitors to his desert perch. No doubt some came to see if he was out of his mind, but this hermit explained that he was simply a committed spiritual Christian who wanted to commune with God in solitude, free from worldly distractions. He said that living on top of a pole in the desert was his way of separating himself from sin and consecrating himself to God. Now, as strange and as off the wall as that may seem, the life of Simon raises an important question. And that is, what does it mean to be spiritual? I mean, after all, Simon said that living in the desert and during the heat of the day and the cold of the night and living on a pole off the ground, and by the way, the higher the better, isolated from people, depriving yourself of the comforts of life, that was how you became spiritual. But was he right? Is that the way you and I are to achieve spirituality? Now, to be sure, before you write Simon off as a nut job, let me remind you that some people go to equal extremes today, as did Simon. The fact of the matter is there are some pretty strange ideas out there in the contemporary marketplace of ideas when it comes to spirituality. The bookstores and the internet are loaded with information and ideas about angels, near-death experiences, ancient pagan religions set up by New Age gurus who operate strange cults, covens, and spiritual shops, all intended to make you spiritual without becoming religious. <laughs> We're told by these proponents that spirituality is something that's private and spontaneous, whereas religion, oh my, that's, a, that's an anathema. Religion is public and rigid. And spirituality is whatever you want it to be. One man wrote, a growing number of Americans pieced together their faith like a patchwork quilt. Spirituality has become a vastly complex quest in which each person, listen, seeks in his own or her way spirituality. And the end result is today there's a lot of confusion about what it means to be spiritual. Some argue that spirituality consists of acts of private devotion to God, having your quiet time, fasting, and going to a retreat center where you stare at your navel. Some say that the way to become spiritual is to find a spiritual mentor and plug your spiritual umbilical cord into them and let them tell you everything to do. Others say that the spiritual life begins at church in the context of public worship where you cite ancient liturgy, you light candles, you wave incense, along with playing the right music on the right instruments at the right moment, 
And for some, it consists of not using instruments at all. Still other Christians say that you need to have a spiritual experience with the Holy Spirit. And as such, the church is divided between the haves and the have-nots. And there's this massive chasm, chasm, chasm between the two. And the end result, that not only is there confusion, there's frustration. Now what I want to do this morning is I want to remind you what Paul says spirituality is. Paul is going to tell us in Galatians 5 as well as Galatians 6 that spirituality is not something that we produce within through rituals and methods, but rather it's the third person of the Trinity flowing through our lives as we surrender to Him and we then produce the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And here's the key. Here's the key, folks. That fruit is not produced for your private enjoyment. It's produced to minister to other people. True spirituality is not a quest for self-fulfillment. It's not the kind of thing where you climb on the top of a pillar in the Syrian desert to discover yourself. Friend, the life of the Spirit, listen, the life of the Spirit flourishes for the sake of other people. It's not primarily something that's done in private. It's something that's exercised in public. It doesn't grow in isolation. It grows, folks, within the community of faith. And it's something that's to be shared. It's not a secret garden, but it's a public park. And as proof of that, Paul says in Galatians 6 that the spiritual life being spiritual, being filled with the Spirit, and manifesting the fruit of the Spirit will manifest itself in four areas. First of all, we'll restore one another from sin. Second, we'll bear one another's burdens. Third, we'll consider others more important than ourselves. And finally, we'll share with one another. Two weeks ago, we spent our entire message talking about restoring one another from sin. Paul says in verse 1, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, you who are spiritual, as some of your translations render it, should restore that person gently. But, 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 watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Friend, right at the beginning, Paul reminds us that that we're part of a family. We're part of God's family. We're sons and daughters of the Most High God. We've been, been adopted into His family by faith in His Son. But even though we're in the family of God and brothers and sisters, that doesn't keep us from sin. Remember what Paul said earlier? He said there's a battle waging between the flesh 
and the Spirit. And sometimes, more often than we're willing to acknowledge, sometimes the sinful nature knocks us off our stride. He keeps us from walking with the Spirit. There are times when through weakness a Christian gets caught in a sin. They stumble into a transgression. Temptation has a way of sneaking up upon them unawares and catching us off guard. And the sad reality is that sometimes Christians are surprised by sin. Can I say something this morning that hopefully nobody will challenge? Friend, there are as many sinners in the church as there are outside, right? Anybody here sinless? Let me talk to your wife, talk to your husband. Better still, talk to your kids. Friend, we're all sinners saved by grace. And that phrase, caught in a sin, doesn't refer to a deliberate habitual sin. It refers to an unexpected sin. Where you're walking along the road of life and a Christian, almost against his better judgment, falls into sin. It probably may even involve one of the works of the flesh where Paul talked, that Paul talked about earlier in chapter 5. And what Paul is saying here is that Christians who fall into this kind of sin need proper spiritual care. So what do we do and who should do it? Well, we restore that person. That verb that Paul uses here is a term for healing. It means to return something to its former condition. It was used in medicine to describe the setting of a broken bone or a dislocated joint. And Paul is saying here in much the same way that a physician sets a broken bone, a Christian who's fallen into sin needs to be put back in order. Just like that doctor puts that bone back in place. And sadly, sometimes Christians offer sinners very poor treatment. We're not very good at triage. We're not very good at taking people to the emergency room. Sometimes we ignore sin. Sometimes we lack the courage to confront it. Sometimes we, well, we just pretend it's just not there. It's an awkward thing to confront. We're a lot like some of the timid medical students I used to work with who might see a patient with a bone fragment sticking out his arm and they're afraid to touch it. Now, please understand, I'd be afraid to touch it too. But they're supposed to be doctors. They're supposed to be willing to do that. And when they refuse to do that, that bone is never set and the wound never heals. And sometimes Christians notice the broken bone of sin, but they never get past a diagnosis. They simply stand around and they talk about what bad shape that person's in. And meanwhile, that person continues to suffer the pains of sin. And they just talk about it. And you know what that kind of treatment is called? Gossip. And sometimes Christians just condemn, they blame, and they punish. Instead of taking a person to the spiritual emergency room, what they do is often they treat them as outcasts. They scold them for 
being spiritually out of joint, and they forget that they themselves are in need of grace. And what Paul is saying here is when Christians, when Christians, brothers and sisters in the family of God, are caught in a sin, they don't need isolation, they don't need amputation, they don't need condemnation, they need restoration. What they have to do is be encouraged to confess their sins and find forgiveness in Christ and get back on track. He says that the spiritually mature are to do that. That's the job of those who are walking by the Spirit, setting broken bones in the life of a sinner is the job of Christians who have the fruit of the Spirit in abundant supply. And it's to be done gently, gently, oh so gently. We're not harsh. We're not judgmental. F.F. Bruce says one true test of spirituality is a readiness to set those who stumble by the wayside on the right road with a sympathetic heart. I love that. Can I just flat out say it? Okay. If some of you take offense at this, well, send me an email, okay? to Doug at IDon'tGiveARip.com, okay? Here's the rule of thumb. If you can't restore a fallen brother or sister in Christ gently, don't do it at all. Give that task to someone else. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, Run to him. Reach out your hand. Raise him up again, comfort him with sweet words, and embrace him with motherly arms. It requires humility. We're on guard. We watch ourselves, lest we too be tempted. Friends, spiritual pride is a major, major problem. Elsewhere, Paul said, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he Now, Paul says that a test for determining whether you are a spiritually mature person is you're willing to restore people who have fallen into sin. But I want you to notice, secondly, in verse 2, he says that not only do the spiritual restore the sinner, the second thing they do is they bear one another's burdens. He says in verse 2, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Obviously, this verse implies that Christians have burdens, right? We all do. And that word burden speaks of a heavy load that just kind of weighs you down. It's talking about the burdens of sorrow, worry, doubt, failure, poverty, loneliness, illness, divorce, disability, disease, depression, and even death. And sometimes the hardships that you and I go through in life are just too much. And we need the help of others. Some burdens are so heavy that they need to be shared if they are to be carried at all. Now, bear in mind, there is a sense in which we carry our burdens to the Lord, right? 
Remember that old wonderful hymn we used to sing, take your burdens to the Lord and leave them there? The Bible says that we're to cast our burdens on the Lord. He'll never permit the righteous to be moved, Psalm 55, 22. Peter said we're to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 7. And beloved, God's shoulders are clearly broad enough to carry our burdens. But the fact that God carries our burdens does not mean that he's the only one with whom we should share them. Because often the way that God lightens your load and my load is by bringing into our lives other Christians to help us do some of the caring. Friend, I am so grateful to God for some of the people in my life who in years past, when I was going through hard times, were there to help carry the load. Can I just say this? If you're here this morning as a discouraged Christian, it may be because you're trying to carry too much weight all by yourself. And God's given us a church here, a wonderful church, where people genuinely love one another. And it's our job to pick up and carry someone else's baggage on occasion. You know, I've mentioned before that when I was in college in Philadelphia, For three of the four years I was there, I was a bellman. I worked at the beautiful Penn Center Inn at 20th and Market Street, which was almost in downtown, the heart of downtown Philadelphia. Now, sad to say that hotel is no longer there. They tore it down about 20 years ago. But my job as a bellman was to take people to their room. People would check in. And Dan was a bellman as well, and he knows what I'm talking about. And we had to teach the desk clerks to say, our bellman will take care of your luggage. And we had to teach the bell, the the desk clerk sometimes, you never give that person the key. You give it to me, the bellman. And I would grab their luggage and make sure that I would take it to their room. And you you would take them up. And it was a great job. It was a wonderful job. Made some excellent, excellent money and tips. You know what Paul is saying here? Every believer is called to be one of God's bellmen, ready to pick up someone else's baggage. And you know what? We do it expecting nothing in return. You know, I was a bellman 45 years ago. That's a lot of years. And as I was thinking about this this past week, I thought to myself, you know, I can't recall ever taking someone to their room exclusively out of the goodness of my heart. I mean, that just wasn't in my makeup. I did it because it was my job. But I also did it expecting a tip. You know what we do? We carry other people's baggage expecting nothing in return. Because sometimes people in the church suffer heavy losses. Losses that are too heavy to bear. And so what we do is we stay
step in and we encourage one another through prayer, through a warm hug, through a kind word, through sympathy. We go and we help clean their house. We bring them a meal. We give them a good Christian book. We offer financial assistance. And Paul is saying here, whenever a member of the church is in difficulty, whether it's physical, emotional, or spiritual, somebody is there to help carry the luggage. And we rally around to help. Martin Luther, in his wonderful commentary, said this, or words to this effect. And I thought it was so, so fitting. He said, not every Christian is capable of setting the broken bone, but we're all capable of carrying the stretcher. Isn't that good? Fred, you may not have the skill this morning to restore a fallen sinner. That's just not part of your gift. You you haven't reached that level of, of spirituality and maturity yet. And that's fine. Keep working at it. But you know what? We're all capable of carrying the stretcher, right? And there's plenty of hurting people. And notice that Paul says when we do this, we fulfill the law of Christ. Drop back, if you would, just to chapter 5 and look at verses 13 and 14, just for a moment. Paul says there, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And even though our salvation does not depend upon it, we're called to keep the law of love. In other words, though we're not under the law, we are to fulfill the law. And remember what Jesus said in John 13? He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. Later in John 15, he said, this is my commandment that you love one another. And the law of Christ is the law of loving one another. And one way to fulfill the law is to bear other people's burdens. We care for one another. This brings me to the third thing that a spiritual person does. That's found in verses 3 through 5. See, not only does a spiritual person, and these are the marks of spirituality, again, it's not climbing on a pole in a Syrian desert. It's not going away as a hermit to a convent. It's not private things. It's public things where we restore fallen sinners. We bear one another's burdens. But the third thing he says is we consider other people more important than ourselves. Look at verse 3. He says, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, when and I love the fact that some of your translation says when they are nothing, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. You know what he's saying here? We don't, we don't think we're too good to help other people. You know, one of the lessons that I have learned in life is this. The way we treat others depends in large measure on what we think about ourselves. 
And people who have this high opinion of themselves are genuinely unwilling to carry someone else's baggage. They're too self-centered to be self-giving. They think serving someone is beneath their dignity. It's too demeaning for them. Why would I ever stoop to help somebody else? And I can understand that. I, I really can. Friend, I can be as selfish as the next person. You know why? Because needy people have a way of demanding our time, changing our plans, and rearranging our schedules. And, and sometimes we have an agenda out there, and somebody comes along, and you know what that requires? That requires the, the sacrifices that we're going to have to make. Not going to take the time to turn, but if you're taking notes, just jot down Philippians 2, 6 through 7. There Paul says, Have this same mind in you which was also found in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And friend, if Jesus was willing to be a servant... Shouldn't you be also? Paul says in verse 3, he says, If anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he's just deceiving himself. You're just delusional. You know, sometimes people are fascinated by their own abilities and attributes, and they're only fooling themselves. I love the story about the woman who came to the altar at the end of a revival service during what was back then called the altar call. She came forward, and with tears streaming down her cheeks, she said that she was guilty of vanity. She focused so much attention on her beauty and charm, and she was prideful because of it. And the pastor stood there and listened quietly and lovingly as she poured out her heart to him. And when she was done, the wise pastor quietly said, so that nobody else could hear, he said, ma'am, Yours is not the sin of vanity. Yours is the sin of imagination. Now, all of us at times, come on, that's a great joke. (laughs) But it illustrates the point, doesn't it? You know, all of us think we're, we're sometimes better than we are. You know, we're the golfer who thinks we can still drive the ball 300 yards when we never could in the first place. We're lucky if we get it out there 200 yards anymore. We think we can still ski, although we never really could, down a double black diamond. And we think we're the greatest. Paul says we're not. We're not. Paul says, fact of the matter is, is you're nothing. One man wrote, we have nothing of our own to boast about, but are destitute of every good thing. You know what Paul is saying here? He's saying, we ought not think of ourselves more highly than we should because everything that we have has come from God. And if we're anything at all, it's only because we've been created and redeemed by Christ. That's why he says in verse 4, each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone. Legitimate pride in themselves. 
without comparing themselves to someone else. You know what he's saying here? He's saying stop comparing yourself to other people. It's so easy to find somebody better than you and become discouraged or to find somebody worse off than you and to become prideful. And what Paul is saying here is test yourself against God's standard, which is the only standard that counts. And then knowing how we measure up to God's standards will help us bear one another's burdens. Listen, the people who one another most effectively are those who know their own strengths and weaknesses. So what we do is we test ourselves, and that enables us to take pride in what we're doing, the right sense of the word. There's this sense of of deep satisfaction that, that God's used us. We've been blessed by God with gifts and abilities, and we use them for His glory. And we don't go around bragging that we're better than someone else. Instead, we're, we're confident in who we are in Christ and how He's blessed us with gifts and abilities. And when we do what we do according to His Word in service for Christ and the advancement of His glory, then we can take proper pleasure in His praise. And we can have that sense of deep, deep satisfaction. Look at verse 5. He says, for each one should carry their own load. Some of your translation says that each one should carry their own burden. And when Paul says that, he's not in conflict with verse 2. What he's saying here is simply this. Each one of us has a particular responsibility. That mutual accountability is to be balanced with a sense of personal responsibility. In other words, verse 2 is not contradicting verse 5. The word that's used in verse 2 refers to a heavy load. Something that just presses down upon a person. It was used of a cargo being loaded onto a freighter. It describes a weight that is to be shared because it's too heavy for one person to carry. Whereas the word that's used in verse 5 refers to a man's traveling pack. It's kind of like a backpack. You've ever gone hiking. You know, everybody has their backpack. And you know what? Everybody's responsible to carry their own load. That's the idea of what he's saying. We carry the weight of our own personal responsibility before God. Friend, you have a burden to bear in this church being part of the body of Christ. And you and you alone are going to have to answer to God for the way you carry those responsibilities out. Your responsibility is, is not to be the pastor. Your responsibility may be to serve in other areas. And that's the beauty of the body of Christ, right? We're all working together, so we do our own work. And we do it without comparing ourselves to anybody else. And we do it so that someday when we stand before God, we'll hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, there's one more thing that spiritual people do. And that is they share with one another. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this verse lest I be accused of being self-serving. 
Do you know what Paul's talking about here? He's talking about caring for the minister in the church. Caring for the pastor who gives spiritual strength to the weak, the people in the congregation, and the people in the congregation in turn provide for the material and the physical aspects of the pastor. See verse 6, he says, Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word, that's you, should share all good things with their instructor. That word instruction is the Greek word katokeo. We get the English word catechism from it. And it refers to an oral instruction in biblical truth. It's talking about teaching, preaching, and sharing the word. And what you find here in verse 6 is, I think, one of the clearest job descriptions for a pastor. What he's supposed to do is he is supposed to instruct people in the Word. And that takes time, it takes energy, it takes effort. Today, many ministers are tempted to perform other jobs. They have to be salesmen for the church. They have to be businessmen, musicians, entertainers, comedians, janitors, maintenance men. And sometimes they do all of those things to the exclusion of being a preacher. And being a pastor is a full-time job. And the role of the church is to share all good things with the one who instructs them. Now, I want it on the record right now that I am very grateful for this church. I have said that time and time and time again, and I genuinely mean it. I am grateful for your generosity. You have been more than generous to my wife and I, and we are grateful. But you know what? You're following a biblical mandate. The Bible says the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. And so a pastor needs to be able to minister free from worldly cares. I like that. That was a phrase, by the way, that the Presbyterians had. And I've got to say this, it's easy for some ministers to abuse that privilege. I read about two weeks ago, some of the salaries that some men in ministry are getting. And it just blew my mind. Some of them were making close to a million dollars a year. And they're candidly just fleecing the flock. And that's flat out wrong. My dad, who had such an incredible impact on my life, used to say there are three dangers in the ministry, and they all begin with G. He said, greed, glory, and gals. Those three things will get you in trouble. And you know what? He's right. Greed, glory, and gals. Be careful in those areas. Now, you know what Paul is saying here? He's saying sharing with one another is part of what it means to be spiritual. 
And here's my closing point and application this morning. It's hard to share from the top of a pole in the desert. Right? Remember Simon the stylet? There's more to his story. Because eventually he decided that he wanted to become more spiritual. Remember his pillar was only six feet high. And so with the help of his friends, he built a column 60 feet high. And he put a platform on the top of this 60 feet high tower that was three feet in diameter with a crossbar to keep him from falling off when he fell asleep at night. And there he remained until his death 30 years later. You know, I'm sure that he was sincere. I'm sure as well that he came down on occasion to take care of some of the basic bodily functions that people have. I'm sure that, that he, he believed what he was doing was right. Probably more so than most of us here this morning. But here's my point. I believe that he would have been even more fruitful and more productive had he climbed back down from his pole and lived the spiritual life in a biblical way. By restoring people who had fallen into sin, by bearing the burdens of others, by considering other people more important than himself, and by sharing all good things. Friend, it's hard to do the one another's from a pole 60 feet off the ground. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this very practical teaching from your word. We thank you, Father, for the outworking of the Spirit of God in our life. We thank you that spirituality is seen not in isolation, but in community where we restore people who've fallen into sin, where we bear one another's burdens, where we consider others more important than ourselves, and finally, where we share with one another materially. Help us to never feel that we're too good to help other people. Give us the proper attitude towards one another as well as towards ourselves. Help us not to wear a mask that says that we've got it all together and we don't need any help. And help us as well not to think that caring for one another is beneath our dignity. May we be willing to admit that we need help on occasion. And may we be quick to offer it when it is needed in the lives of others. And we pray towards that end in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, Amen.